I am thrilled to preach a message on Christmas here on Christmas morning. Every year at Christmas, we, uh, it's remarkable how we as a culture, as a society, as a generation, focus on the birth of Jesus. I say it's remarkable. You can read statistics of Muslims celebrating Christmas. I mean, it's just amazing how Christmas celebration has taken over the world for many people, even non-Christians. It's their favorite time of year. It's the best day of the year and things like this. So I ask very basically, what's so remarkable about the birth of Jesus? Well, according to the Bible, Jesus was virginally conceived. That's remarkable. It's one of the remarkable things about the birth of Jesus. It's miraculous. According to the Bible, Jesus' birth was announced by angels. Remarkable. But there's actually something more remarkable, and it's what the virginal conception and the angelic announcement were pointing to. What is that reality? The most remarkable thing about the birth of Jesus, I'd call it the greatest of all wonders, is that the birth was an incarnation. Incarnation, big word, we're going to define it. Incarnation refers to a person taking a human body, taking human nature, becoming human. That is what incarnation refers to, a person becoming human. When Jesus was born, the eternal Son of God, God is triune, one being, eternally existing in three persons, that's what we know, that's what the scripture says. Do we understand it? Not really. That's why we say holy, holy, holy meaning there's no one like you, no one like you, no one like you. You are utterly unique. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, at the birth of Jesus, was taking a human nature, assuming a human nature, so that from that point on, this person, this single person, the Son of God, would be fully God and fully human from that point on forever. Incarnation. You say, is that what the Bible teaches? Yes. John 1.14 very famously and simply says, the Word became flesh. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became human. He was incarnate. An incarnation happened. Um, A theologian, Wayne Grudem, just says, this is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. It's far more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man will remain forever the most profound miracle and profound mystery in all the universe. The incarnation. That the creator became part of his creation. Staggering. Before his incarnation, Jesus was fully God. And from that point on, he will always be fully God and fully man. An incarnation happened. There is no one like Jesus. He's utterly unique. We say, holy are you, Jesus. And 
as the utterly unique, fully God, fully man person, he is uniquely and perfectly suited to be our Savior. To die for human rebellion in a way that counts for humans and to die for humans in a way that satisfies the justice of God because he's God. He's perfectly suited to be our Savior. This morning, I want to focus on one passage that teaches the incarnation. It's 1 Timothy 3.16, and I want to show how life-shaping it should be. Very simple objective this morning. Now, 1 Timothy 3 is in a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy around 62 AD. So this letter is nearing 2,000 years old. It was written about 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Even though Paul wrote it to Timothy, a fellow church leader, and why it's called a pastoral letter, he wrote it to Timothy, but not only for Timothy. It was a letter to Timothy intended to be read by the entire congregation for the whole church's benefit. So Paul wrote it around 62 AD. By this point, Paul had been associated with Timothy for probably 10 to 15 years, and he had assigned to Timothy the leadership of the strategic church in Ephesus, a town in modern-day Turkey out of which many other congregations would be planted. Interestingly, in Acts 20, which recounts history that happened a few years before this letter, Paul talked to all the pastors in that city of Ephesus, and he said, there's coming a time when people are going to teach false things. And he warned them about the false teachers that would come up. That's in Acts 20, especially verses 29 and 30. Interestingly, about 30 years after this letter is written, Jesus speaks to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, and he commends the church in Ephesus for warding off the false teachers, for teaching what's true. Even though Jesus has some concerns with the congregation, he says, you have been faithful in keeping your doctrine pure, your teaching about Jesus pure. Interestingly, that gives us a little window that Timothy heeded this instruction and kept the gospel central and kept the gospel clear and accurately, he rightly explained the gospel in Ephesus and he defended it from from falsity. So encouraging. It is in this passage, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, that Paul explains his burden for writing, okay? Okay. We're going to get to verse 16, but pick up at verse 14. Timothy, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that, that's a purpose statement. Here's why I'm writing. I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then he defines in verse 16, the truth. He says, great indeed or undeniably great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness and then paul quotes an early church chorus a hymn it's a six-line poem he was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by angels he was proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world taken up into glory it's a six-line chorus from the early church. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. 
That chorus unpacks truth about Jesus. Gospel truth. Good. Royal truth. Let me just unpack it very quickly, the six pieces. The first is incarnation. When it says he was manifested in the flesh, it's saying God the Son became human. That's what the incarnation is. God the Son became human. Right? It means he appeared in a body. It clearly indicates that Jesus as a person did not begin to exist when he took on this body. He pre-existed the body, right? When he was born in Bethlehem and laid in the manger, that was not the beginning of the existence of this person. No. From that point on, from the point of his birth on, the Son of God is fully God, eternally God. He is fully God and now fully human as well. He has, has assumed a human nature That's marvelous. Second, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, this could refer to a couple things, but I think it most clearly refers, as Romans 1, 4 says, the same author in a different letter says, that when Jesus had been crucified three days, God the Spirit raised him to life. And in doing so, God vindicated That Jesus, who had been shamefully crucified, was truly his powerful son. The resurrection is when Jesus, three days after his crucifixion, was vindicated to be the son of God when God the Spirit raised him to life. The third facet is his exaltation. He was seen by angels. Of course, he was seen by angels at the empty tomb. He was seen by angels as he ascended into heaven 40 days later, but I think this most likely refers to his exaltation when Jesus, who was victorious over death, ascended to heaven and he took his seat on the throne next to God. And he is in that position surrounded by myriads upon myriads of angels. He's exalted and seen by angels. Revelation 5 particularly unpacks what happened when he was seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, and angels upon angels upon angels are praising him as the worthy lamb. The fourth phrase has to do with proclamation among the nations. Proclamation. The proclamation refers to how within one generation the message about Jesus spread throughout the Western world. This history is recorded in the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Risen Christ, depending on how you title that book. It's how the message spread from Jerusalem into Samaria and then into Syria and then into modern Turkey and then into Europe, into Rome itself. How in one generation this message spread through proclamation of the Apostles. The fifth phrase is the complement to the proclamation and that is the reception He was not only proclaimed through the world, but he was received on in the world. He was proclaimed among the nations and received on in the world. Uh, Believed on in the world. He was received. This phrase, of course, the reception refers to how within one generation the gospel was not only talked about, but it took root. It was planted in city after city after city throughout the Roman Empire. 
by the time Paul had written this letter to Timothy in Ephesus, there was actually a church at least a decade before in Rome, a decade before Paul writes this statement that he was believed on in the world. I think Paul is not only writing this statement, I think he's quoting a song that the early church sang. But that means that a decade before Paul writes this letter, a church is in Rome. You say, is that significant? Rome is the biggest city in the world at the time. It's possible that half the world's population lived under the government of Rome. The gospel is being proclaimed among the nations, and it is taking root in the world within 30 years. If you trace it to when it gets to Rome, it's less than 20 years after the events. Incredible. The final phrase, taken up into glory, I think again refers to the ascension. I think both three lines end at the same spot. The exaltation and the ascension focused on the current glory of Jesus. This phrase, taken up into glory, clearly focuses on the ascension when Jesus, this is 40 days after the resurrection, goes into heaven. He's lifted up off the ground and he goes into heaven. And I think after the phrases proclaimed and received, I think this is emphasizing like Acts 1 does, that the power for the gospel's spreading and the power for the gospel's advance and its success among the nations is driven by the sovereign Christ who is seated on the throne awaiting his return when the advance of the gospel has reached the point he intends for it. Hmm. Jesus is enthroned right now. This is powerful truth. This is poetic truth. The eternal God became a man. But after he died, he didn't stay dead. He rose again and he now sits enthroned, surrounded by angelic powers who are praising him. And by his power, the power of the one seated at the right hand of the Father... The gospel is advancing throughout the world and it will not stop until he returns. This is glorious truth. This is wonderful truth. What does it have to do with our lives? I give just three simple points. I first want to say, if you look at the first phrase of verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, I'd put it in my own words like this. What we together, let me put it more personally, Tri-County, what we together confess about Jesus is undeniably massive. Paul uses the term great. What we confess together about Jesus is indeed undeniably huge. We can't fathom how great, how massive, how heavy this truth is. How glorious and beautiful this truth is. What we confess about Jesus is undeniably massive. These mind-boggling truths about his incarnation and resurrection and exaltation, worldwide proclamation and reception, his ascension in heaven, where he's now reigning, these truths will transform the lives of believers, to be Godward. They change our lives. 
These mind-boggling truths transform believers to live Godward lives. Hmm. Three breakdowns, really, of this main idea. The first is we must personally know and corporately confess these truths. The words we confess, great indeed we confess. It means that these truths unpacked in this poem are truths that we should personally know. And we, together, corporately, as a church, should confess them to be true. We should continually confess them to be true. See, confessing these truths about who Jesus is and what he did, they make Christians and they make churches. Confessing Jesus as God become man, died and risen again, ascended into heaven, returning to reign as king, confessing these sorts of truths, confessing Jesus as Lord is what makes someone a Christian. And confessing these truths together and holding one one another accountable to faith, conviction about these truths is what makes churches. Even though it's a bit strange, Paul in the previous verse says that churches are pillars and buttresses of the truth in this poem. When we confess the truths about Jesus... We do what pillars and buttresses, if you're an engineer, you know what these are, what pillars and buttresses do for huge, tall buildings that have massive rooftops. That in the ancient world, if you created a building that was 50 or 100 or even even taller, if you created a building that was 50 or 100 feet tall, you could see the building. Usually the building would be built on a hill. You could see the building from miles, tens of miles away. The church, in Paul's thinking, is the pillar and the buttress, the wall supports that keep that massive building up so the whole community can see the glorious structure of the gospel. We must personally know and corporately confess these truths. And I just bring us to the sober reality before moving on to the second application. Tri-County, this means that we who confess the truth about Jesus... We are the billboard of the gospel in this community. We're the billboard. We ourselves are the billboard. I don't know what that does for you here at the end of this year and at the, at the beginning of the new year. But the way I respond when I realize that I am personally confessing massive truths and we together are corporately the pillar and buttress of this massive monumental truth about Jesus. I say, God, help. God, help me not to be a pastor, a church leader who ruins my life and who ruins the testimony of the gospel in this community. Help me, Lord. We want to be a billboard that we're not going to be perfect. No chance. We want to be humble. We want to be authentic. We want to say, Holy Spirit of God, I need your help to exalt Jesus and keep enduring in faith. Help me to get back up when I fail. Help me not to be a hypocrite. We're the billboard for the gospel in this community. 
We need to know personally these truths, and we need to corporately confess them. Second application, we must marvel and sing over these truths about Jesus. Marvel and sing over it. Notice again, verse 16 is a six-line chorus. Most people believe it was a hymn in the early church. It's the sort of chorus, the phrase, the phrase, the phrase, six times. It's the sort of chorus, I've shared this before, even recently, earlier this year. The sort of chorus in the, in the hymn, One Day, that J. Wilbur Chapman wrote. Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever, one day he's coming, O oh, glorious day. Line, short line upon line upon line upon line that's just unpacking who Jesus is and why he's so awesome. That's what this is. Now, these truths, I think just based on the form of them, the fact that they're a poem, indicates that this is truth that's worth marveling over, writing poetry over, singing over. And I wonder if you're not a Christian, maybe you're here and you're investigating Christianity, maybe you're not, maybe you're opposed to Christianity, but just here because a family member invited you. I'm thrilled that you're here. Everyone starts somewhere. I want you to start right here. Why would a song like this have been written less than 30 years after the events it describes by people in a generation who knew and had seen and had lived with Jesus. How is a song like this getting written? Well, one thing I can tell you is, regardless of what you read about in Life magazine's Who is Jesus? depictions of Jesus, this can't be legend. No chance that this is legendary. There is not enough time for legends to develop. And this, if you call it a legend, would be unthinkable. Jews, monotheistic Jews, inventing a story about a man who's God? And then they risk their lives and most of them die for this fiction? There's no chance it's a legend. I want to ask, how does a song get written? How does a song like this get written within a decade or two of the events it's describing? Well, I think a song like this gets written within a decade or two of the the events it's describing because it's true. It's true. And if it's true, if Jesus is God become man, if he's risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, then I urge you, in fact, on behalf of the Lord Jesus, I command you, submit your life to King Jesus. Personally believe the proclamation. Commit your life to this King who is God incarnate the risen Savior, the only mediator, the coming King. If the facts aren't true, there's no point to Christianity, and we at Tri-County Bible Church are, of all people, most to be pitied. But if those facts are true, then every person's life should be committed to this truth. We should not only submit ourselves to it, 
we should marvel at it, sing over it. And I just speak from personal testimony. I think everyone at Tri-County Bible Church would say that is true. But here's my personal testimony. When I sing, fall on your knees, oh, hear the gospel story. What a night that our Savior was born. There is a sense in me that I exist to praise Jesus. It's a personal testimony. You can take it for what it's worth. It's just a personal testimony of experience, but I sense that that's what I'm made for. Singing over these glorious truths is like breathing air. It's, it's what I live for. Third, we must allow every part of our lives to be shaped by these breathtaking truths about Jesus. Again, verse 16, the first phrase says, what these truths encapsulate is the mystery of godliness. That's the title of this song, the mystery of godliness. That is a weird title. You don't typically hear song titles like that, the mystery of godliness. But what does that mean? Well, mystery refers to things that we would not know if God had not chosen to reveal them. Hidden things that we would never know about unless God revealed them. You might call it out-of-this-world truth because it doesn't come from within this world. It's nothing that anyone in this world would make up. These breathtaking realities about Jesus are a mystery, an out-of-this-world kind of revelation that produce godliness, or you might say lives that are directed toward God, that are focused on God, that are in obedience to God. And this is where I end. If you embrace these truths, that Jesus is God become man, and crucified, risen from the dead, these truths that he's ascended into heaven and returning to reign, you will understand that you exist for him. If you really grasp these wonderful truths, then you will submit yourself to the authority of this king and say, I'm not my own authority. Jesus is God's chosen authority for this earth, and I'm accountable to him. If you really understand these truths, then once you've submitted your life to him, you are going to keep warring against your rebellious desires in your heart. We're all going to keep saying, what displeases Jesus, what's unsubmitted to Jesus, I need to confess, I need to turn from, I need to put behind me, I need to throw off, I need to keep warring the good war against these rebellious desires in my heart. You're going to keep talking to others about these truths. Even if they dismiss you, even if they ostracize you, you say, how can I not talk about these glorious truths? And you're going to keep faithfully serving others, loving others, even when you personally get nothing out of it. Because doing things for Jesus Doing things for the eyes of King Jesus, that's what matters more than anything. So you keep loving, you keep enduring in service because these truths ground you. Do you see how these truths shape a Godward life? They are the mystery, the truths we'd never get if God hadn't revealed them, that produce a Godward life. These breathtaking realities about Jesus 
produce a Godward life in those who confess them to be true. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be shaped by the wonder of the incarnation. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Lord Jesus, be exalted in every heart here today as we submit to you, as we live for you, as we seek to obey you, as we seek to call out on you for forgiveness when we fail, as we seek to keep spreading the message about you, and as we seek to keep enduring in love and faithful service of others. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd be exalted as these truths about you, these breathtaking truths shape our lives. Be honored, Jesus. We want it for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen.